You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, as you may have heard, I feel terrible. Uh, I feel pretty rotten. The uh, The last week that I've, uh, last Sunday as I was sitting in here listening to Adam teach, uh, we were actually set for Adam McLeod to teach this Sunday and me to teach the next Sunday, but he was at seminar and I started to think just through um, just continuing in another lesson on top of what Adam was teaching last week to try to further emphasize some of the points that he was making. And so I made a decision. I was sitting in that chair and I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to try to get ready to be able to teach next week. And it was like, as soon as I made that decision, um, everything about my week just started going downhill real fast <laughs> uh, to the point to where yesterday I was under the covers like all day shivering. But even before that, uh, Sarah will tell you, I've had a lot of things that have happened this week that have specifically exposed my selfishness. And I think that the reason that uh, I've been extra sensitive to that is because of the particular text that we're going to be in today. Um, so if you would, I'm going to pray uh, for God's grace and His mercy over this time and just to speak through me uh, and through the cloudiness that literally feels in front of me um, and that, uh, that we can walk away encouraged today. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, Lord, and are grateful and thankful for uh, your love and your mercy. Lord, we recognize that Uh, that we are gathered here today because of the great love that you first showed us in the person and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, as we will examine today, as uh, as your scriptures show, uh, he humbled himself um, all the way to the point of death on a cross, and you have highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above all names because of that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the, the first love that we first had, um, and that we would repent and do the works that we did at first, um, as the church in Ephesus was told. We do continue to pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified through everything that takes place. We pray that your spirit would be our great teacher this morning. Amen. Okay, so as we get started, I'm just going to uh, go briefly over some of the things that we talked about last week. Uh, last week's summary sentence uh, was, churches that maintain a meaningful presence in their community are diligent in their doctrinal purity and persistent in their love for God and each other. So if you remember from last week's sermon, Adam taught that the, uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation chapter 2, um, he said that from that letter to the, book of, or to the church of Ephesus, we got out of that our summary sentence that churches that maintain a meaningful presence in their community are diligent in their doctrinal purity and persistent in their love for God and each other. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn back to Revelation 2, I'm just going to read that. That's not the text that we're going to be in today, but it's going to be hopefully the uh, the point in which we are jumping off of today to go to Philippians. So we're going to be in Revelation 2 real quick as I start to summarize that. Revelation chapter 2 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you look on the screen, this is actually something that I found uh, this week, and it's a poem that's written by John Newton. Uh, And it basically is just that letter there in a poetic form. Let's look at this. It says, Thus saith the Lord to Ephesus, and thus he speaks to some of us. Amidst my churches, lo, I stand, and hold the pastors in my hand. Thy works to me are fully known, thy patience and thy toil I own. Thy views of gospel truth are clear, nor canst thou other doctrine bear. Yet I must blame while I approve. Where is thy first, thy fervent love? Dost thou forget my love to thee, that thine is grown so faint to me? Recall to mind the happy days when thou wast filled with joy and praise. Repent thy former works renew, then I'll restore thy comforts too. Return at once when I reprove, lest I thy candlestick remove, and thou too late thy lost lament. I warn before I strike, repent. Hearken to what the Spirit saith to him that overcomes by faith, the fruit of life's unfading tree in paradise his food shall be. John Newton, that was a, a really encouraging poem that I found this week that went right along with what Adam was teaching. Again, this was Adam's uh, summary sentence last week that churches that maintain a meaningful presence in their community are diligent in their doctrinal purity and persistent in their love for God and for each other. And he said for the kids last week, our church is called to love truth and each other. I started thinking about this yes, uh, this week as he was teaching that and as I was going back through the lesson and listening to it, if you remember in his sermon last week, he taught us that churches that maintain a meaningful presence in their community are diligent in their doctrinal purity first. And he went on to explain that like Ephesus, for us at Sovereign Hope, this might actually be something that we're doing fairly well. But just like Ephesus, where we might actually be failing is in our love for God and for each other. So I wanted to go forward in this and actually talk about Well, what does it mean? What does it look like to be persistent in love for God and each other? So I just went right off of that and came up with this summary sentence. Churches that are persistent in their love for God and for each other are filled with people who are humbled by the incarnation and committed to imitating Jesus. For kids, our church is called to love like Jesus. So again, Adam says churches that are consistent to maintaining our presence in our community or or going after our doctrinal purity, but then also persistent in our love for God and others. But I wanted to answer the question, but what do churches that are filled with love, appropriate love for God and others look like? And I think the obvious answer is that they're filled with people who have been humbled by the incarnation or the gospel specifically and committed to imitating Jesus in that type of love. So I use the word incarnation here specifically because that word talks about Christ becoming a man, coming to earth, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Like Ephesus, our church must remember and repent and do the works that we did at first. 
Adam read us a passage last week in the book of Matthew when Jesus said to his disciples, talking about the signs of the end of the age, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Adam has been teaching us about getting prepared for the end. And one thing that Jesus says is definitely true about the end is this. Love for God and others will grow cold. It's a sign of the end. I want us to flip to Philippians chapter 2. If you remember last week as he was teaching, he said something specifically about repentance isn't always about doing something new. It's not about finding something new to do. It actually might be finding something old. And as I was thinking, I thought, what better passage for us to go and examine the type of love that we're supposed to have for God and others than Philippians chapter 2. And yet immediately after I had that thought, I had the thought, I don't want to go there because Adam's already taught on that. In fact, if you were a part of our ministry many years ago, we spent years in the books of Philippians, in the book of Philippians. And I just knew for a fact that I did not want to go to Philippians because I should already understand it. But Philippians 2 Verses 1 through 12 is something that I want to examine again today. It's actually uh, the passage talking about Christ's humiliation here is actually one of the earliest church's first and modern hymns that they most likely sung. And so just like any hymn or song that we do today, we want to sing it over and over so that we can fully understand what's going on. So let's read in Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul writing from prison to a church in Philippi. And he says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Verses 1 through 4, if you look at that again, this is Paul's great desire for this church in Philippi. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and there is, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. We're actually, as we work through this passage, I'm actually going to tackle it going backwards. We're going to jump forward 
to the uh, to the motivation of examining what Jesus did, and then work backwards to that uh, Paul's great desire in verses one through two. But I started thinking about it, and I was uh, wanting to illustrate what Paul's desire was here from prison. And I'm reminded of a passage in Ephesians four where it says, "Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, right." And then he goes on to say, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And I've always stopped and considered how amazing that that is because we've got a prisoner in prison writing and he says, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, I have a request. I urge you. And I don't know about you, but if I've ever thought about a prisoner writing to a group of people and having an urgent request, it might be something like, bring me a home-cooked meal or bail me out of jail or get me my warm winter coat, do something, right? And what we see in Ephesians 4 and here in Philippians 2 is that Paul says from prison, here's my great desire for you. My great desire, the thing that I want is for you to either in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, or here in Philippians, to, to work together, have this mind among yourselves and to work to be in full accord and of one mind. And I was thinking about this at our school. Uh, as I was studying for this this week, I was um, I'm always plagued by our my placement of my classroom downstairs because it's right next to the the room where our, our middle school band practices. And there's lots of recorders going, and they're trying to play songs that are you kind of recognize, but most of the time, uh, uh, but the one thing about Miss McKinney that I'll say. Um, is that she is very, very proud of her students. Uh, She's trained them. uh, She works with them all semester long. And I mean, it's a long semester for us teachers because we hear every note. But you actually see and hear the change that they have in this band. Now, I was imagining that every, at the end of each semester, they have a time where they they go and they, they put on display what they have actually been practicing. And I, have, I had this just kind of imagining of Miss McKinney getting in front of the band and saying, listen, you guys make me joyful. You do. I'm so proud of you. I've invested in you. I've done all of these things, and you have responded rightly. But we're about to go out there tonight, and this is what I'm asking of you. Complete my joy tonight by playing in the same tempo, playing in the same key, using the same sheet music, right? Not rushing ahead and playing on your own, right? But by being together in one mind. And I think that that's kind of an appropriate picture because even with her joy already being towards her students, it's definitely not fulfilled or made complete if they are to rush on and be selfish or want to demonstrate their own uh, parts without playing together as a whole. So that's just a small little illustration that I was thinking about what Paul is saying here. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. And now he's going to go on and explain what type of mindset that that is. Going back to Revelation, he talks us, uh, he, he mentions here, to remember therefore from where you've fallen. Remember. Um, Adam said last week that we definitely want to remember the works by which we did it first, but I also want to go on into remembering uh, the love that first drew us. 
Sorry I don't have notes, by the way. I had every intention of getting you notes. But the very first thing that I want us to say here is let us remember the humiliation of Christ or the lowering of Jesus, the humble, the humility of Jesus. So I'm going to actually tackle this passage backwards. So let's jump straight to the final uh, motivation here in verse 6. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse five or verse six again, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, I wanted to uh, draw your attention to Colossians 1.15. As I look it up, you can look there too if you'd like. Colossians 1.15 and on says this about Jesus. Paul is writing to the church in Colossia. And he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. This is talking about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. What's not known about God and his invisibility is known in Jesus. Jesus is the visible part of God, the firstborn of all creation. And for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Another passage that, I'd like to draw your attention to is Hebrews chapter 1. In a very similar way, the writer of Hebrews attributes this form of God deity to Jesus, the person of Jesus. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What's clear from Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 is that this Jesus is God. And in Philippians 2, it said specifically that he was in the very form of God. I want to uh, show you this on the screen. We're going to go through a couple steps about how Jesus lowered himself. The very first step here is that though he was in the form of God, Paul tells us, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I want you to stop and ponder what this is. We're saying that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, enjoyed the glory of God, of being in heaven, worshipped perfectly uh, for all eternity. And he did not count that equality with God something to be grasped or clung to or held on to. But instead, we're going to see that he actually sets it aside. 
that he comes to earth as a man. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Step two, but he emptied himself. I wanted to read something to you here uh, from this commentary just because I knew I would mess it up without it. It says this, It must always be kept in mind that Jesus emptied himself only of certain aspects of his prerogatives of deity and not his deity itself. He was never anything and never will be anything but fully and eternally God. As Paul was careful to state in the previous verse, all four Gospels make it clear that he did not forsake his divine power to perform miracles, to forgive sins, or to know the minds and hearts of people. Had he stopped being God, which is an impossibility, he could not have died for the sins of the world. He would have perished on the cross and remained in the grave with no power to conquer sin or death. Even in the midst of his death, he had to be the mighty God in order by his death to conquer death. What's clear here is that even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Next, what we see by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we're not, all, we're not just talking about God coming to earth. We're talking about God coming to earth and taking on the form of a man. So I'm sure in Greek mythology, you might find some story of a, a God deity coming to earth, right? This isn't a God just visiting earth. This is our God coming to earth, humbling himself to come to earth, but by taking the form of a man, becoming like us, experiencing our weaknesses, experiencing the temptations, experiencing all the things that we experience as people. He subjected himself to that humanity. He taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. I want to read you two passages here because he did not just become a man, right, as you know, and was born in a castle. That wasn't how he came to earth. He came humble and in lowly means being born in a manger. Here in Mark 10, verses 43 through 45, this is a very well-known passage that you know. It says in verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think about all the things that Christ had that belonged to him. And he did not count any of that thing, equality with God, something to be clung to, but willingly came to earth as a man, but not as a rich and powerful and wealthy and famous man, but came as a servant to come to serve us, not to be served, but to serve. Look at uh, John 13. This is a larger section of Scripture that you're familiar with as well. But it's a reminder of the example that Jesus was leaving for us. In John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, I'm going to read this story. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him. And that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Step three, he took the form of a servant. And I think that you can see that very clearly in this passage. He, being their Lord and Master, was the one that got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. And he says, you don't understand it now, but I'm leaving you an example that you should do just as I have done to you, to others. Step four. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Matthew 26, 39 is the, uh, the, the passage about Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 36, I'll back up. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, we see this picture of Jesus being found in human form and humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He's at a place where he is, his soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death, he's explaining to his disciples. And he prays to the Father, if it be possible, then let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is a great example of his obedience to the point of death. Hebrews chapter 5 also talks, talks about this as well. 
Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then also 10, Hebrews 10, verse 7. Or backing up to verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But that leads us to our last step here. It's even death on a cross. There was no crueler form of punishment, no crueler form of death. You have to understand that this Jesus, our God man, example and great um, pattern and example for us, came and died, but he was not beheaded. He was not stabbed. He was not anything else. He was crucified. Crucified was the cruelest form of punishment. And we must remember the death of Christ. So because of that, I want to take you and actually read this large passage of Scripture here in Matthew. I was doing this with our class uh, just last week when we were talking about the Gospels and we were talking about the death of Christ. And it was a reminder when I asked them, I said, how many of you have heard that Jesus loves you enough that he died for you? And all hands went up. How many of you have heard that Jesus died on the cross for you? And all hands went up. I said, how many of you have actually sat down and read the passage about Jesus dying on the cross? And no one raised their hand. And so I said, well, we're going to read through that today. And actually, as I was reading through it, I, re- I realized it's not something that we often go back and read. It's not often something that we go and remind ourselves of the details of what happened in the death of Christ. But if we were to be a church as Adam's leading us to understand, where we're returning to our first love and we're repenting and doing the works that we do at first, we've got to be motivated by the appropriate type of love that we see here on the cross. But there's no greater way than to see that than to go directly to the source in Mark chapter 15. So if you'll flip to Mark chapter 15, we're going to read about 30 verses here. Mark 15. And we do pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us and and challenge us by this example that we see here. Mark 15, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they had asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon Serene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests who were with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from that cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Would you just stop and consider the great love that we see here it's, it's, it's something that you've heard before, that Jesus loved you so that he died on the cross for you. But when I see this passage, I see Jesus loved us to stay on the cross for us. I mean, if you think about it, he had people pointing up at him saying, if you're really the Christ, then prove it. Come off down the cross and prove it, then we'll believe. I was talking to my kids about this when we did this. I said, imagine somebody had started a, was planning to start a rumor against you. And you had uh, a screen. You took a screenshot of an instant message feed or whatever that they were talking about, starting this rumor against you. And you took a screenshot and you grabbed it. But then, surely the next day, they started spreading this lie about you, and it got all over the school. And your reputation was just tarnished. I said, "You've got all the proof that you need to show that you're innocent in your pocket, right here on a screenshot." I said, "How long do you think it would take you, whenever somebody was in your face?" Screaming, I can't believe you. Like, I, I'll never think of you the same way. I can't believe that this is the, the type of person that you are. I said, how long would it take you before you're like, just zip it and look, okay? I'm in the right. Everybody else is in the wrong. This is me. It's vindication, okay? But here's the thing. Jesus had more than a screenshot, right? He had everything that proved that he was the Christ, and yet he allowed and stayed on the cross while people were screaming at him to come down and prove it. That is mind-blowing to me. But beyond that, if you'll look really quickly to 1 Peter 2, we'll see that not only did his love for us on the cross compel him to stay there, 
but he was even leaving us an example while he was on the cross. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 25, says, For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Get this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. I sometimes think about Jesus being crucified on the cross, thinking that surely he could have still been crucified and not sin by just opening up his mouth and letting those Roman guards know that they have no idea what they're doing, right? I I feel like Jesus would have been justified to still die for mankind on the cross and yet look at people and say, you have no idea that I uphold the universe by the word of my power. You have no idea that I keep your heart beating right now. You have no idea what I could do to you, right? I feel like he would be justified in saying things like that. But what's the example that he leaves us? He doesn't even open his mouth to threaten. When he's threatened, he doesn't threaten in return. When he's reviled, he didn't revile in return. He just kept it silent, leaving us an example, as this passage says. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For the sake of time, I won't go through it, but if you read Isaiah chapter 53, it talks about the suffering suffering servant. Jesus is this great pattern and example for our faith. And if we're to be a church that loves others appropriately and loves God, we've got to return to understanding the great love that was first shown to us. Implication here. Jesus demonstrates that the love that first drew us is a love that is willingly inconvenienced. Think about that. I struggle, like this, this week as I was thinking through this, I struggle when I work long and hard hours to find time to go to Griffin to see my family. I, I come up with excuses to find time to call my grandmother, right? To be inconvenienced, to demonstrate my love for family. I mean, these are the people that I should be loving like the easiest, right? But how far did Jesus go to demonstrate his love. He left heaven. So if I'm not going to be willing to take up this mind among ourselves, then I may not be willing to come in here and cross the distance of an aisle to make a connection on a Sunday morning with someone here. A love that is willingly inconvenienced, humble and lowly, selfless, steadfast, and unwavering. Think about it. The love that he showed was a love that stayed on the cross. Another implication here, and I'll try to speed up a little bit. Jesus is our great pattern and example, and when we keep his love at the forefront of our minds, it will enable us to rightly love God and others. He is our great pattern and example, and when we keep his love at the forefront of our minds, it will enable us to rightly love God and others. So we will not become the church that returns to our first love unless we have this great example and pattern 
of love at the forefront of our minds. We cannot love God and others without first coming from this foundation of love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, Adam said last week, this is serious business. A church that doesn't get its love right is a church that ends up not existing anymore. We've got to return to our first love, which is why I'm handling this passage backwards. I've never done that before, but I'm starting with the motivation so that when we get to the divine imperatives here, we can hear it with a new uh, perspective. I'm not starting telling you what you should do. I'm showing you the example of what Christ did. And now we'll move to the divine imperatives of verses 3 through 5. And we'll go through these very quickly. Verse 5, he said, Paul says, Remember, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. But then he goes on to explain what this mind is. He says, have this mind in you, which was also in Jesus. So have this mind. This is a what we would call a divine imperative. This is a a command to obey. It's not the great suggestion. This is a command. It's have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Backing up in verse 4, he says, and this is what that kind of looks like. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This doesn't say, don't look to your interests, right? It says, let each of you look not only to his own, but also to the interests of others. We want to consider others' interests above our own. Have this mind in you. This is the mindset that Christ took up. This Greek form here, if you remember, Adam taught us many years ago, this let each of you look, that's the Greek word skopio, where we get that idea of telescope, microscope. It's, a, it's an observing something with careful attention. Observing, looking to others' interests above ourselves, but also to the interests of others. Here's the hardest one for me. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfishness. Selfishness is the promotion of self, and that's something that I'm very, very good at. Or conceit. But instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is a lowliness of mind. I often, I've asked my students once when we covered this, we're memorizing this passage together, and we talked about humility. I threw it out there really quick. I said, how, how, how hurt are you if you fall off the first rung of a 90-foot ladder? Right, and everybody says, uh, very badly, right, because they didn't hear me. I said, no, 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 no. How hurt are you if you fall off the first rung of a 90-foot ladder. And they're like, oh, not bad. And I'm like, yeah, it's exactly. Because the idea here is that the humility is a lowliness of mind. You know, there's passages that talks about pride going before a fall. 
right? But when we maintain an attitude of lowliness in our mindset, then we don't fall far when we do fall. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If you remember many years ago, this is actually where we got the idea as a church of the Greek word hooper echo. We made it on t-shirts, we were talking about it, and it was becoming the the identification of our our church group was this hooper echo mindset that we were to take, this counting others more significant than yourselves. Hooper echo means to excel, to surpass, and to be superior to. And we see it also in Romans 13, when Paul is talking about um, subjecting yourselves to governors and emperors above you in 1 Peter 2.13 as well. We're to treat others count them as more significant than ourselves in the same way that we would subject ourselves to a king or a president. I should treat Alex as if he is the king or the president. Right? I should I should treat others as more significant. Now that doesn't mean that I pretend that they're more significant. It's that I take up a mindset where I actually look to their interests above my own and regard them as more important than me. Now in middle school you see it a lot where People want to promote themselves out of selfishness, and so what they do is they cut others down, right? Whether it's in the things that they say or the rumors they spread or the social media things that they post, their, their attempt is to cut others down so that they can see themselves as higher. But it's an effort like you, they're not going to actually be able to be higher, so they've got to cut others down. This is the exact men- opposite of that mentality. It's lower yourself so that very naturally everybody is just above you. That's the mindset here that we're talking about. Just lower yourself, and you don't even really have to work to promote others over you. If you keep that lowliness of mind, others will just very naturally be more important, more significant. We are called to consider and treat others as more significant than ourselves, which leads to one of the last things that I'll say as we wrap up. Let us obey these divine imperatives. Again, remember, have this mind. Let each of you look. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Count others more significant. There's a lot of commands there. But wait, are we supposed to obey even when we don't feel it? I'm going to say yes. And this is why. Last week, if you remember, Adam said that our church, like Ephesus, might be filled with people that do a lot of things out of duty as opposed to delight. Maybe we've lost our delight. And Jesus talks about this. There are people that honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. So we might be that church that's lost our heart behind a lot of the things that we do. However, if we recognize that we have lost that, the answer is not to just simply sit down and do nothing and wait for it to magically come. What I'd like to say and argue is that when we actually move forward in faith and be obedient to these divine imperatives, what we'll see is that God allows the affections to follow. He'll allow those affections to follow. We want to love God and love others. This is the great commandment. First John 5, 1-3, many of you have heard before. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And then 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's, again, not a suggestion. We also ought to love one another. The last passage that I'm going to draw our attention to before I wrap up is the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, spoken at many weddings and other places where love is the subject. I want to show you something here, though, actually, that's here. It says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As far as prophecies, they will pass away. As far as tongues, they will cease. As far as knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In the first verses, before he goes on to explain that, he said, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think about that. When we come up here and lead music, if Topi was the only one playing right on his cymbals and his drum, it would be a little distracting, right? There's, There's no music involved. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to even remove mountains but have not love, then I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So this is a a humbling reminder to us this morning that as we seek to become this church that returns to our first love, we repent and do the works that we do at first by taking up these divine imperatives and, and doing them, doing them out of our love for God and love for others. This leads to application questions here. Remember and repent and do. Remember, this is what I'm going to challenge you to do. It's something that I have found to be beneficial for my soul. And that's memorize Philippians 2, 1 through 12. Very practical. Memorize it. Put it to memory. Uh, as I said, this, uh, the part where Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, that section was most likely one of the earliest Christian hymns sung. And so like songs and hymns, we need to sing them over and over. Commit them to memory. We must actively preach the gospel to ourselves and intentionally remind our souls of our pattern and example. We must actively preach the gospel to ourselves. We will not be able to love God and others unless we are very familiar with the truths of the gospel. 
We must be active in reminding our souls of our great pattern example. And then repent and do. Am I ready to imitate Jesus and go great distances in order to count others more significant than myself? Am I willing to start scheduling times where I get off of work and go to Griffin to eat dinner with my family as a small application to this passage? Am I willing to, like Adam said last week, serve in nursery, right? Understanding that every single time that I do it allows someone else to come here and hear sermons. Am I willing to keep my schedule open, as Adam said last week, for accountability meetings? Am I willing to come to services on Sunday, but not just come to listen and sit and leave, but to come and cross that aisle to make a connection with people? Are we ready to imitate Jesus and go great distances in order to count others more significant than ourselves? If you would, let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your greatness and your goodness and your mercy. Father, I'm thankful that you uh, have enabled me to even get through this this morning with the cloudiness that's in my head. But God, I pray that your word and your scriptures speak clearer and truer than I ever can. I pray that the great example and pattern that we see of Christ on the cross and Christ in his servanthood in his life, and his obedience would be our great example and pattern that we seek to imitate. That we would love others with a, a selfless, uh, willing-to-be-inconvenienced type of love that we see in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would make this true of our church here at Sovereign Hope. Lord, as Adam mentioned, we, we may be very good at doctrinal purity, but Lord, we do not want to be guilty of losing our first love. So Lord, help us to remember these things and to return. Lord, help us to take up this mind of Christ and have the same mindset that was in Him, in us. Help us, Lord, to consider others' interest above our own. And Lord, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but instead in humility to count others more significant. Lord, this is something that I know that we will have to practice over and over and over in order to fully get. But Lord, I pray that as we are faithful to seek to put this in practice, even when we don't feel it, God, that the affections and the love would follow. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified as we, as we leave this place today, as we consider these things in our C groups this week. Lord, we pray, God, for the, the protection and the safety of, of Ben and Adam and Andrea as they're most likely getting very close to landing and starting their journey of encouragement. Lord, there's probably no bigger example in our own church of someone that's willing to, to travel great distances and spend great amounts of money than those three. Lord, help us to see that we will never be willing to do something similar unless we're willing to start in the small areas here. Thank you for your great example and the pattern that you've left us. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.